When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alex, thanks so much for coming on, man. Happy to have you here. Very honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. So uh, I've been watching your stuff. I I think you have the best tagline of the business community on YouTube. Hi, I'm Alex Ramosi. I made $85 million this year. I have nothing to sell you, which is just the best the best way to start any <laughs> advice video that I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, so, so talk not necessarily about the tagline, but for people who might not have seen you in our audience, how'd you get started? A little bit about Jim Launch and, and what your... Uh, superhero origin story is? Um, so I had a, I would say a more atypical um, entrepreneur journey. And I, I say this, I like to at least explain this part because I think a lot of people who are contemplating entrepreneurship, et cetera, are being influenced by a lot of the marketplace, which talks about, you know, hey, school never understood me. I, I couldn't, you know, I'm dyslexic. I can't read. And I had to drop out of high school and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't have that experience at all. I was a really hardworking uh, student. I did really well in school. Um, I finished in three years magna cum laude. I was president of basically every every part thing that I was a part of, um, and and then kind of followed followed the path. So then I became a management consultant after after college. I did that for two years. We did defense contracting, so space, cyber, and intelligence. I thought it was going to be uh, really interesting. I didn't find it as interesting, um, and I really didn't enjoy it uh, as a whole. And so I uh, quit. And I think that. I think if I had been in a different career path or a different company, I may never have quit uh, because quitting for me was probably not probably it was the single hardest decision I've ever made um, in my life, which should hopefully be reinforcing to anybody in the audience who's contemplating that. It's like if it feels very hard, (laughs) then just know that every decision after that is much easier. Uh, (laughs) And so you you just described Charlie and I to a T, (laughs) like eerily, eerily, even to the point where Charlie's doing consulting for the government. Oh, really? Oh, that's fun. We can talk about more. That's that's fun. Um, yeah, I had my I had my uh, TSSEI clearance. I I did the whole you know. I, oh, you were legit. Yeah, yeah. I was a scrub. I was I wasn't going into any sort of clearance. At yeah, all. I have my. I was an Excel monkey. I posted my card, and they were like, "You can't post that on the internet." And I was like, "Oh, my bad." So I like. I was like, "Look, guys, like, <laughs> I, you... I was like, I got top secret clearance." <laughs> <laughs> when you use toilet paper, I want you to know Charlie probably picked the brand. Yes, oh. that was that was me going single ply. We got to save money. <laughs> hey. None of that double ply luxury. Yeah, and every guy is just rubbing their their backside, hating you. Um, <laughs> anyways, so uh, I ended up quitting that, um, and then. But the, the thing that I learned the most was the consulting process of how to how to acquire skills and learn, and that was something that I, I took with me for the rest of my life. And so um, I knew that from my consulting role, the best way to learn or rapid skill acquisition is to talk to experts. And so I reached out to as many experts as I could so I could learn about what I wanted to do, which was I wanted to do something in fitness because I I liked it a lot. And so, uh, anyways, one guy got back to me, I mentored with him for free, uh, for, for 90 days. Uh, and then I started my own facility 
And so uh, from there, I slept on the floor. Very miserable experience for me. My first book, not the one that we're talking about, probably uh, talks about that in more depth. Um, but very, very, very hard on me. Uh, it was a very dark time in my life. I mostly was driven by rage and, f and insecurity of, of proving my parents wrong and proving, you know, the many stories that a lot of us have that we tell ourselves about what other people are saying about, behind, about us behind our back. And in reality, they're not thinking about us at all. Um, mm -hmm. But anyways, I, I continued in that and, and I, I did reasonably well with it. And uh, by month nine, uh, I had outsourced the whole facility. And then every six months after that, I opened a new facility off cash flow um, at full capacity on the first day, which I thought was normal because I was like, why would you open a gym without everybody already being pre-sold? And they were apparently that was not the way it was being done. Um, you know, fast forward, I had six locations, talked, uh, joined an internet marketing mastermind, which I had no business being a part of because I was a brick and mortar business owner. But the sales guy was like, oh, it's tons of gym owners here. There's not a single gym owner in this mastermind. Like, <laughs> We've heard that line It was before. <laughs> actually hilarious. I got in and I was like, he was like, oh, yeah, tons of gym owners. Like, the, And you'll learn how to do the online thing and have online clients. And I was like, all right, cool. And it didn't end up happening. But it ended up being one of the best decisions I ever made uh, because when I was there, uh, Russell Brunson, who's the guy who owns ClickFunnels, uh, this was years ago. Um, he was like, I think you have a level 10 skill set and a level two opportunity. I think you should be showing people how you run your gyms rather than opening more. And at that point I had location seven, eight, nine, ten already picked out. And I was like, like we're talking a weeks away from signing the leases. Um, mm -hmm. and so that was a big pivot, you know, kind of crossroads for me, but I'm a big believer that if you're going to pay for advice, especially from somebody who's ahead of you, uh, if you don't listen to it, you know, you kind of might as well burn your money. And so, uh, I was like, okay, well, he does make more than me, and he, I will, I will heed his advice. And so I sold all my facilities within um, within uh, 90 days, uh, pretty much fire sale. Uh, I can talk more about that later if you want. But uh, then I pivoted into uh, kind of doing a gym turnaround business. So we used to fly out two gyms and filled them up, and I did that for almost two years. We did 33 turnarounds. And then from there, I felt confident enough to start licensing the model out. There's lots of trials and tribulations in losing my money sure. twice throughout that story <laughs> um, and having to start over from broke. But that's, the, that's the, the nuts and bolts of that story. And then we started licensing, and that's when things just took off. Our, 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 we went from zero to two and a half million a month within like 12 months. And our, our first full year of business, we did $28 million in revenue. And, um, and then uh, I started a supplement business that the next year after that, uh, Prestige Labs to sell through our distribution base. Um, the next year after that, we started uh, Allen, which is a software company that, uh, that works leads because that's one of the biggest problems with brick and mortar gym. It's really the front desk. No one's calling the leads, even if they're getting them. So we, tr we try to solve that problem. Um, and then uh, after that, because, you know, the business is, you know, generated just in the last three years, you know, 40 something million in profits that Layla and I have taken out. Um, now we had a ton of capital. And I was like, all right, well, let me see if I can start investing in, in some other businesses that are similar. And so that was kind of what started acquisition.com about a year ago. Um, and mm -hmm. so now we have uh, three about to be four portfolio, four other portfolio companies. So it's seven companies um, that are in that portfolio. We'll pro still probably acquire about one a quarter. It's kind of our target. Um, and uh, and kind of grow kind of grow that way and wrap in the systems that we have. Um, the, the overall thesis, which may, the audience may find interesting, is that um, I'm, ironically, I'm not a big believer in formal education, despite being very formally educated, um, you know, having gone to college. Uh, I think most of us have been, um, they failed most of us, uh, mostly because the value proposition is just very, very low. Spend $200,000, don't work for four years, and give up all the income you would have made, um, and then have the same exact job prospects as you had when you came into the, you know, college. doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, if you're doing anything business related, if you want to be a doctor, then yeah, keep doing it. But for everyone else, 
it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I think that's what's given rise to the kind of guru industry that's been blowing up because the demand for skills will always be high because I believe people do want to work and they do want to provide value. Um, and they just and, and they are willing to pay for that. Um, and I think that, candidly, the e-learning space and education and training that is existing right now, I think, is so far superior. I think the way it's marketed is, could probably be improved. But in terms of what mm -hmm. it actually provides, if you learn how to, you know, make Airbnbs or do Airbnbs and make money, that's awesome. If you learn how to, you know, uh, put ATMs in small businesses, that's real value. If you learn how to, uh, you know, sell high ticket sales, like that's real value that I don't think is in the formal education system, but is very real world valuable. And if people saw them mm -hmm. as classes, rather than saying, hey, I took one class in college and now I have a degree, but instead thought of like their e-learning experiences, I'm going to need to take a lot of different, you know, courses, mentorships, coaching seminars, et cetera, um, to be able to, to put, assemble a skill set that will, I can then apply to whatever opportunity comes my way and, and see the time that I'm kind of acquiring those skills as just my education rather than why am I not a millionaire yet? Um, I think a lot of people would be better served. And so with acquisition, yeah. Well, I do. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because you say you think that people inherently want to work hard and they want to do something that's valuable for the world, mm -hmm. but that is not the tagline of a lot of the online gurus. So I think when people sign up for these online classes, yeah. it's they haven't been brought in by someone who said, hey, listen, this is 101, after this is 102, over the course of four years, you're gonna work really hard, but you're gonna make something amazing for the world. Right. A lot of the marketing that they're being given is, you're not gonna have to do anything, yeah. you don't need any skills, it's going to be easy. So I don't know if it's true or not that people do have that inherent uh, proclivity to work hard and try to be valuable, yeah. but certainly those are not the people joining most make money guru courses because most make money guru courses are not marketed that way. Yeah. I think, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, to challenge that piece. I, um, I think maybe it might be romantic on my part, but in terms of like, I just, I think people <laughs> want to, I think people want to provide value. I think people lack work ethic. Absolutely. But I think the desire to provide value they wouldn't say it in those words, their desires to make money, but we know that that's, you get, you get money through providing value. Um, yes. I think, th I think the desire is there. Uh, the, you know, the backing it up, I think we all know a lot of people don't work hard, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I, and I think I, I, I tend to go towards educational businesses in general because I'm so pro education. I'm so against formal education, but it's just, my life mm -hmm. has been saved through education. And so, that's why it's what I'm what I'm called to do, and that's what acquisition.com to wrap around to the original point. Everything we have is free, and I have nothing to sell you, is because you know my hope is that people take all the stuff. They don't if they don't have any money or they're in third world countries, they can use the the books and the courses and, and the videos and all that stuff that we make, and just you know just make the world better overall. And hey, if you're you know you cross five million, ten million, and you'd love us to to help you get to fifty or a hundred, then like we'd love to invest and in, in, and be a part of it with you. Yeah, what that's I'm awesome. The, I'm, I'm so reminded of, and I don't know if you've thought of this particular analogy, of Google's business model when I listen to you, which is like do everything awesome for free because you're making money elsewhere and you just want everybody in the ecosystem. Is that something that has occurred to you and you're like, let's be the Google of education? Or you know, how did you sort of come to this? It's just a very different way of thinking about online education, and I've heard you say a number of things that have reinforced this. Most people think of customers as – the entrance of money into their bank account as opposed to the beginning of a relationship. And that sort of is underscored by what you're trying to do with acquisition.com. Curious how that arose. Yeah, most people make sales. Uh, most people get customers to make sales rather than making sales to get customers. Mm -hmm. I think the I think the biggest issue um, 
or not issues. I think the, the underlying piece is, is, is time horizon. So the reason I think most people don't operate that way is because they are, their time horizon is rent this month. Their time horizon is how I'm going to feed mm -hmm. myself. And so they can't think past the first dollar. Um, but I think I, I don't, I don't, I don't need any more dollars. Right. And so I can play super long. Right. And so for me, I'd rather, I'd rather help the next, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, read all my books, start his business, get it growing. And then say, dude, you help me do all this stuff. And most of the wealth in the world is created through big, fast growing companies. And it would be easier for me to not have to have some sort of edu massive education business, which I don't have a desire to build. Um, and instead just have goodwill, uh, overall, which mm -hmm. candidly I value a lot. And I think that Part of it is because of my viewpoint of the world, which I share relatively publicly, that I don't think that any of us matter. And then I think when we die, nothing's going to happen. And I don't think legacy is real. And so it's like I also tend to – this tends to be the shovel that I want to use to dig my own grave. Um, and I enjoy digging <laughs> it this way. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, I want to get to the life stuff. I definitely have a lot of questions just personally <laughs> about – well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm confused if we should start with business yeah, or life. Can, you can have, do, do you have a preference? You can do whatever. All right. Well, let's do it here because so, yeah. this, is, this is the burning question that I have. Yeah. Um, I ha I, have, I make you know a fraction, an order of magnitude less than, than what you make, but I, I really feel that I've solved my money problems with, with rare, rare exception. Totally. Uh, and so I am, I'm curious when I hear you talk because you, you say all these things and I have the same experiences. Like I've given a lot of money for me to charity and it has felt morally right, but uh, I don't feel it yeah, <laughs> in the same way. Like I know it's the right thing to do, but I'm not feeling it. So my question for you is, I guess there's two big ones. One, why, why continue to use money as a measuring stick? Is it like, I, you're like, I'm going to have a billion dollars yeah. or this, that, and the other thing. Why, why has that remained? And then two, what are the, the milestones of money or things that you've been able to spend money on that have really increased the quality of your life and some that haven't? Because I'm seeing uh, increasingly that it seems like there's fewer and fewer things that I can spend money on that increase the quality of my life. So then I go, well, what am I doing? You know, I'm just going to play video games with my friends, which is 100%. a complete waste of time if I'm trying to make money, but it's, is fun while I'm doing it. Right. So which we want to make money to go have fun. So then wait, what? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. So, uh, let me see if I can answer the, the second question first, because it was the one you just sure. asked. Um, the marginal utility of money decreases massively over time, right? So the additional, your next million dollars makes a significantly less impact on your life than your first million dollars, right? And the first hundred thousand dollars, in my opinion, has, you know, 80, 80 to 90 percent of the utility you'll get for money oh, is yeah. in the first hundred grand, right? And then everything after that is really, really diminishing in terms of its return. I think the only thing that's expensive, um, th there are two things that I get that I get value from. Uh, one is I like flying private. It's, totally, not private. I was going to say first class, oh, but that's, it's, that's dude, it's what a different I get. World. Oh, yeah. Private is way better. Yeah. It's not even close. It's way better. <laughs> it's I it's about $49,000 more per flight. So well, you know, we're you not can get quite it. there. We're not at that level it's yet. About, so I'll, I'll tell you, so you can do it for, it's about four to 5,000 an hour. So if you have a three hour flight, uh, you're, you're looking at 12 to 15 grand. And if you got six to eight mm -hmm. seats on the plane, you know, if you're take if it's you and two or the three other people, all of a sudden it's like two or three thousand to take it. Like it can be. I'm not okay, by no means am I saying it's like you know. Cheap. I'm just saying that like it's it's it's. Anyways, I like it. I do think it to use Warren Buffett's word. I do think it's indefensible. Um, but at some point, I'm like, well, what? Why even? What am I accumulating more money to do? Yeah. Right. There's right, and so it is 100% a comfort uh, thing, but. 
what and Layla consolidated this statement. <laughs> I won't talk more about private flying. Um, but she said what it did was it transformed travel from a nuisance into uh, a, a positive experience. And so yeah. going from uh, economy to first class, it's still a nuisance. It's still a pain, right? It's just a little less of a pain, but it's still a, neg- a net negative in my opinion. Flying private, I would say, borders on and may actually be a positive experience because you, you okay. literally just drive your car to the plane, you walk on the plane, you've got filet and lobster, and then you get off the plane into your car and you drive to where you're going. And there's no security. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no other, there's no babies. There's no, like there's, it's just, it's nice. So that's the yeah. one thing that I would say. And the other one is I like buying places with views. So yep. um, we're in a, we're in a Las Vegas uh, penthouse right now. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. You know what I mean? Like I look outside and I feel like I genuinely gain perspective because I see everything and I see the amount of wealth that exists in the world. And I think it helps. It only helps me from a perspective standpoint. So there's the two things that I think that have been, I would say very expensive, um, that I have gotten actual value from, but beyond that, uh, Mm -hmm. very, very, very little marginal utility of extra money. The first question I think you asked was why use money as a measuring stick and why do I, why do I say the billion thing? So, um, I have, I have absolute commitment to getting there and I have no emotional investment towards its achievement. I don't care. It's more that it's kind of like Gary Vee's like, I'm going to try and buy the jets. It doesn't really matter. It's more just about the game. And I think that, and it might be self, um, self aggrandizing for me to even think this way, but I think it's probably true because I'm human. Um, I think that people will listen to me more if I'm a billionaire than if I'm just a hundred mm-hmm. billionaire, <laughs> you know, and that's probably just my own insecurities or whatever. Um, and I think that, mm-hmm. I think that we'll get there based on the math. It would be, it would, it would, I don't, it's, it would be unrealistic for me not to get there unless, you know, unless I massively blow something, you know what I mean? Um, somehow. And so just, just on the math of just the, literally the pure cash we have, not even the businesses or the cash flow that those generate. If we just sat that in 10% when I'm 65 off a billion dollars. So mind you, a billion dollars today will be $10 billion then. So, you know, you can't yeah. think about that, but anyways. Inflation. Yeah. Does, well, sorry. Can I, can I chime ahead. in? Cause I kind of want to, I want to ask this, a sim- it's going to sound similar, but it's, I'm going for something different, which is, so I don't know, and I'm not trying to say your exact net worth, no. but let's just say you, you have $40 million or $50 yeah. million in the bank cash, right? No, I've probably, I'm probably closer to the mid thirties. It depends on how you, okay. uh, but like in, in investable assets. $35 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. What motivates you to do work you don't enjoy? Or do you just only do work that you enjoy? Because uh, I could imagine having $35 million in the bank and going, I'm only going to spend my time doing things that are fun. And the second something's not fun, but can make me more money. I'm just not going to do that thing because I don't need more money. And so I'm curious, do you have that philosophy? And if not, what is it that gets you to do the thing that's yeah. so this is interesting. inconvenient or stressful or not fun? So this is interesting. I believe that humans need challenges to enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And so then it starts to become, am I living by my values? Because am I the type of person who, who I, because one of my biggest fears, and I remember saying this over and over again, was that I never want to become soft. I never want to mm-hmm. feel like if everything were taken from me, I could not build it again. And so for me, I feel very shishi, foo-foo, whatever word you want to use for not wanting to do certain things. Now, that being said, to your question, the vast majority of my time or 100% of my time, I pretty much spend doing stuff that I find enjoyable or stimulating to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Um, 
but I, I won't shy away from something if it's, if, if I, if to get to the thing, the next thing that I want to do, uh, I have no difficulty in, in, in attacking it. But I think what ends up happening to the question that you have, and this may be interesting for you. I don't know what level you guys are at business wise, but we, when I talk to seven figure entrepreneurs, right. Um, they're talking about tactics. They're talking about, hey, we did this order bump, we did this change in headline, or we switched in this new platform. It's tactical. Eight-figure guys, they're usually talking about processes that they're putting inside of their business. You know, they just hit a million a month or a million and a half, two million a month, more in there. And, mm-hmm. and they're like, that's what they're that's what they're thinking about. All the people that I know who are, and I think I think we'll hit, I think we'll cross a hundred million in, in in revenue by by probably end of Q1 next year, maybe Q2 next year. But mm-hmm. The conversations that I have with all the guys that I know that are at that level and above, it's all about people. And so I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, and he was like, yeah, all the business owners that we serve, and they have a big platform. Uh, he's like, they just always, they're always like, how do I get more traffic? How do I get more traffic? And uh, I, we both were laughing, and I was like, I would just say, go hire someone who knows how to get traffic and then mm-hmm, do that. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and we both cracked sure, up sure. about it, but that's, candidly, that's how I think about stuff now. And if I were to start a new endeavor, I wouldn't build a business. I would assemble a business. And so it's like, I know we need one of these, one of these, one of these. I'd put it together and say, go pursue it on my behalf. Here's the incentive for all of, for everybody. And, and that's how the business would grow. And if it doesn't grow, then I would swap people out until it, until it was growing. And so the mm-hmm. thought process changed, but I think you do have to go through it. And maybe that's a believer story I'm telling myself, but most of the guys that I know who have achieved that did go through each of the steps so that they could they could cross-check and be like, I know this guy's full of it, and I know this guy knows his stuff, so that you can simply make better judgments on other human beings with, with decreasing error rate. You still have them, but just fewer errors. Got it. I the, wanna, this I wanna, is your question. Well, no, I, wanna, to I, wanna, <laughs> I do want to circle to this because I actually really uh, need to figure out the hiring thing. But I do have one question uh, because I agree that people need is a weird word, but I would say thrive on challenges and if challenges are rewarding and fulfilling. Do you find that you diversify them amongst monetizable challenges and challenges that don't make money? Or do you focus mostly on challenges that make money? Because I could imagine, again, 35 million to the bank, you go, I'm going to learn to play piano. I'm going to build a homeless center that makes yeah. no money at all in Las Vegas. And I'm going to try to invent something. I'm going to do the challenge of inventing a new way to improve solar energy and maybe it'll be a billion dollars, but maybe it'll just solve global warming and I won't make any money. Uh, but I also know people who are serial entrepreneurs and everything they do is in the pursuit of, of wealth. And so I'm curious what, uh, how do you pick your challenges? I guess what, what drives you? So right now I'm still, I, so money is not the driver. Um, I just love the game of business so much. I just love the game of business. I loved and was obsessed with fitness. I had multiple state records. I was, you know what I mean? Like I was in good, like physical competitive shape, right? Still are. I saw the quads before Thanks. we started. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> um, but, but when, as soon as I got into business, the love that I have for fitness just paled in comparison to just like how obsessed I was and how mm. much I just, I just loved spending every hour that I could. And like my free time now, like right now I'm going through a course on, on deal structure. I was like, this is great. You know, like, I'm just like, I love it. Like, I truly love it. And so in terms of challenges, the the way that I have skinned the challenges for me, at least in my current season, is pursuing Mm -hmm. bigger goals than I did before monetarily, but with massive constraints. 
And so it's like, can I get to, and so right now my actual like mental target is I'd like to do a hundred million in profit a year. So that's my, that's my, uh, between all the portfolio companies, right? That's my next target. Mm -hmm. And so if I do a hundred million in profit per year, I don't want to do that as a slave. I would like to do that as a, as an owner advisor and working two to three days a week uh, with them. And I say work. So for me, the work is like meetings. So that's meeting with the CEOs mm -hmm. of the companies, meeting with a handful of leadership. That's what I consider like work, work. Um, and then the rest of my time is, you know, making the YouTube stuff, uh, writing the, the books, making the courses that we're going to be publishing, doing podcasts like this. Like these are all just, this is, you know, I, I enjoyed the, I enjoy this a ton. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, well, the reason I the reason I ask you is because I could imagine people who are listening who who are very enviable of your life. The fact that you are an advisor who buys businesses, who has more money than almost anybody on the planet. Like they, they want to get where you're getting, but maybe they don't feel the same way you do when they first pick up entrepreneurship. So maybe they were a great athlete who doesn't find the business books exciting or whatever it is. Maybe they're an incredible musician who, when they try to go into the online course world, they find it a grind. Have you had any success with yourself or with other people learning to love the game? Or do you find that it's kind of like how some people like art and some people like sports and you like it if you like it and you don't if you don't. So if business is your game, you're set up for success. And if it's not, then you don't get to be Alex Ramosi. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first off, I just want, like for the audience, you even saying the 35 million thing, I literally feel pangs of insecurity that it's not that much money. Just so you know. Really? Just, I just want like wow. I just want to give everyone like that. Like I'm like, my God, it's not over a hundred. I'm such a poor person. Like oh, no man. one even thinks I'm successful. <laughs> like, I hope no one hears this. Like I'm just like I can I can tell you the thoughts that I'm having while we're talking about this. Wow. Um it, Well I respect your self awareness and your willingness to share that. <laughs> I'm happy to, um, I tell you all the things that are just flawed within me. Uh, but the, the, the other part, which is, uh, if, if you don't inherently love the game, right? So mm -hmm. my perspective on this has shifted, which then makes it hard for me to even talk because then I think about some of the things I said five years ago and I wish I just never said anything, but then it's like, <laughs> then I wouldn't speak anymore and then whatever. Um, yeah. and so my, my viewpoint on it is that I do think that there's a lot more luck than I used to give credit for. And the luck is not from outside circumstance of like things happening and meeting people, but more luck of the draw, the initial draw of like, what were my genetics? What was the initial upbringing that I had? What were the stimuli I was exposed to? Um, that gave me these proclivities. Because if you think about it from a large number standpoint, right? With a large enough pool of people, which most people, just about everybody is within a system where the money is involved, right? And if we just, if we just said only capitalism systems, sure, there's still a billion plus people or 2 billion plus people that are, I guess, including any of three, you know, half the world's population is in a capitalist system of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that many numbers, lots of people will work hard. But the people who have a proclivity and work hard and have some level of natural talent towards it will just ex excel better and faster. And so... Do I think that, I think that most people, almost everyone can accomplish um, a, a, a very, very, everybody can be in the top 1%. That I believe, which means you know, one to 5 million mm -hmm. investable assets. I believe everyone can do that in their lifespan, 100%. But most people don't have the character traits and the discipline to do that. Now, is that luck? Is that, you know, who knows? But the, the question that my closest friend, Dr. Trevor uh, Cashy, uh, who's, a scientist and studies behavior stuff all the time. He's like, is it useful? 
to ask the question because it's not under our control at all. He's like, so mm. you might as well tell yourself that you do have a natural proclivity to being in business if you want to be successful in business because it doesn't serve oh, sure. you in my any question. Way. Oh yeah. My question was only like, what do I do if that's, I'm just making up an example, yeah. but what do I do if I'm an incredibly talented guitarist who wants to start a business where I'm teaching people music and I've been trying for two years and it's just not working. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think I have that proclivity. Can I acquire that? I guess. I think you could, I think you'd probably be smarter for that person to go find someone who loves that game. And then the only skill you'd have to have is how, do, how do I make, have the perspective from which to make a judgment that this person actually is good. And then do I have enough skill in negotiation so I can make a favorable deal for myself? And so if you can do those gotcha. two things, you can be Justin Bieber who's not a business guy, but he's still mm -hmm. extraordinarily wealthy. Eminem is not a business guy. He's still extraordinarily wealthy. So I think you're, there's still ways to play it without necessarily having business be the game, which I find kind of interesting too, because I'm not Kylie Jenner. You know what I mean? And Kylie's younger than me and wealthier than me, which I'll tell you another one. When I found out she was a billionaire and she was younger than me, I literally like had a day where I was like, I just felt like I felt horrible about myself. Oh no. I'm telling, oh, I'm just, no. I like Did literally was like, I suck. <laughs> it's like, why oh, am I man. not? So I'm just telling you, like, the, the insecurities run deep to get here, right? <laughs> sure. Um, well, you know, yeah. you you had an Instagram post, and I, I really appreciate it. This is one of the reasons I want to talk to you, uh, your candidness. Yeah, I love There's it. an Instagram post where you said uh, you were in text conversation with a friend, and you said something to the effect of, like, the bigger the hole in your heart, the bigger the stuff required to fill yeah. it. So I have millions of dollars. Read what you will into that. Yeah. Uh, I think I just I appreciate you saying it and and separately for if you have have you ever done anything like therapy or psychedelic <laughs> medicine or anything like that and have you found it have you found it helpful because uh, I I mean I appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge yeah. but and then when I hear those things as well I mean dude I can I I can totally relate to that smaller number values Whatever. and I, I guess at some point I'm appreciative that the stubbornness in me quit and went, this is fucking stupid. <laughs> like a hundred thousand subscribers, a million subscribers, 5 million. And there's like, when I get that diamond play button at 10 million, now, <laughs> then people will see me differently. And, and I, and I hear that same, uh, and as his business partner and best friend, it's been a mixed blessing. <laughs> like as his friend, I'm like, that's great. And as the business partner, I'm like, Remember when you had all those insecurities? Yes, it's needed, taken the it's taken the wind out of my sails. It's taken the wind out of my sails. So yeah, have you have you addressed it other than um, filling it with success and achievement? Have you have you uh, taken other ways of looking at that that internal feeling? Yes. Um, and how has that gone? Like what what is what is soothed or yeah, helped? Or, I would um, say that I think time dulls the sting of pain. Um, mm -hmm. You know, over a long enough time horizon. Um, but for me, I think I think. I don't think pain, the pain changes when we look back on it until we understand it. And I think that's, I think for me, defining what the objective was for quote therapy or self-work or whatever, simply as my, I seek to understand. And I think it becomes yeah. far less uh, intimidating to go explore some of these things. If you're like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not here to change anything. Like you're telling yourself, right? You're like, I just want mm -hmm. to understand yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me, the conclusion that I've made and candidly, this is also just the story that I might just be telling myself. So, hey, who knows? Um, but the story that I tell myself, at least, is that um, I, I had these massive insecurities about my father's approval, right? That, so that was the thing that was withheld from me, my childhood, adulthood. Um, 
I mean, and, and for context, my father called me and he, he pretty much said all the things that I had done up to, you know, every, every decision that I had made was not a good decision after I decided to veer off the mm. path of the job, right? Everything after that was a bad decision. And it was only when I had literally made more money than he'd ever made in his entire life that he said, you know, you're going to want to hear this. And I stepped out and I was like, what? I'm at like dinner. And he was like, I'm sorry. And I was like, for what? And he was like, you know, for, for saying that you shouldn't have done this. And I was like, okay. And, and he was like, no, I, I think it was, he's like, but for the record, he's like, if it had been 30 years ago when I was coming up, I would have been right. Um, yeah. and I remember thinking to myself, one, if I cared about your opinion, I wouldn't have done it. And so I had to, I had to break the sting of your approval when I was literally at, on my balcony thinking about killing myself in my consulting career. Um, that was what was the painful enough to force me to make the change where I was like, well, if the alternative is death, then I can at least disappoint my father. That was really what it had to come to. <laughs> like, it sounds ridiculous, but that is what I had yeah. to. And that's why you probably sure. often hear me measure a lot of decisions against death because it helps me gain perspective on what is important. And so for me, I was like, well, I'm guaranteed to be, to be miserable forever. And if I'm going to be miserable forever doing this, then I might as well die. And if death is what this is, then I might as well choose this and live with the disapproval. And so I explained mm -hmm. that, um, and the, the piece that I think I delivered that I think stung, but I think the audience might appreciate was like, I was like, you know, that moment I was talking to my dad, I was like, you know, that moment when people get on stage and like, I just want to thank my mom and my dad for always being there and always being supportive of me. I was like, I'm not going to say that. I was like, cause you weren't. And so you can probably hear in my voice, like I still have the anger that's there. Um, yeah. but what I had to realize was what I had done up to that point And up until maybe a couple of years ago was, I wanted to beat my father so badly at his game that it would be um, that no one, that he could not claim that I had not won. And so mm -hmm. every aspect of my life has been built to be uh, impenetrable. And so it's like, I don't want to just be in shape. I want to be so jacked that no one says that I am not in shape. I don't want my wife yeah. to be just a girl. I want her to be incredibly hot, incredibly cool, and fucking good at business and making money, right? I want... I, I can't just make money or have a living or just be in the top 1%. Like I want, I want so much money. And the real reason is because I just want everyone to leave me alone and not hurt me. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's mm. how I, I built my defenses up. And so it was, it was to be just an unhurtable machine, but it was just because deep down I was right. And so yeah. the game that I did was to play a game that he had built for me. And so now the question that I had to ask myself was what game do I want to play? And so it's been, it's been uh, illuminating for me to try and redefine my own game. And I think that for me, my, my decision, acquisition.com is the first business that is spawned from my desires rather than from the games and the, uh, the variables that were set out by, you could say society, dad, whatever, uh, that I had to win, right? And so yeah. the new games that I'm trying to play are to die the person who gave the most. And so those are the things that feel aligned with my values, not the values that I was trying to prove uh, to, to other people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is, a, a your, your conversation interview, but I, I just did, um, MDMA with my dad. Oh, right. So that's like a, you, yeah. And it, uh, it's, it was not exactly the same. I would say everything that I hear about you, I have like an order. Um, it's the same for me, but an order of magnitude less, <laughs> you know, but it was that competitive, uh, yeah. 
that thing going on and, and the, the deep seeking of approval. And, uh, you know, he told me the same thing when I did my business, which is, and, 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 and understanding him, it was because for him, it didn't work in his, in his era. That wasn't how you did things. Yeah. So I, I totally relate and, and separately we'll try to convince you to, to do MDMA, but <laughs> for, for now, for now, I actually, um, unless you want to stay on this, I wanted to sort of talk about a little bit about the book that you've got yeah. and offers and stuff like that. Is that, did you want to stay on this, Ben? No, go for it. Cause I want to circle back to business, but it feels really shallow compared to what we're talking about. So yeah, I'll let is... you do that and then I'll bring up a topic that's a tie with how shallow you go. I'm happy to talk about money. Mind you, like I, like I yeah. enjoy making money and all the things about it. So I'm, well, I'm happy to talk. You know, about this is, this is my life, man. I love going in and out. Like I love sitting up here and talking about like, dude, this, this whole game is bullshit. Like this, this is all silly and it doesn't matter. And then fucking screaming when I'm losing, you know what I mean? like, how do I get better at this game? Um, so that's, that's how I live and that's everything. But, uh, in terms of the game, in terms of the offer, yeah. one of the, like learning, uh, listening to you is you're very pithy. You've got a lot of useful frameworks that are helpful. And one of them that as I watched uh, a video was the, it's like an equation for what an offer is. And I don't want to mess it up, but essentially on the top yeah. part of it, you, you know it better than I do. I'll mm -hmm. let you introduce it. Yeah. So I think the, the contribution of that book to maybe the marketing community or business community as a whole, like if it, it were summarized into one thing, it would probably be that equation, which is the value equation. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason that it actually came to be was because I was trying to, I was actually, it, this came to me like three years ago when I was building our supplement company. And when I was doing research on supplements, it turns out that supplements sell, there's twice as much revenue in supplements as there are in gyms as a whole. And I was like, how can that be? Right. Cause like gyms obviously help way more people get in shape. I was like, but, but if that yep. were, but the marketplace values with the marketplace values. So it was like, that was kind of the, the, the data point that set me on this kind of little path to figure this out. And so, um, and, and trying to compare like, why is this thing, they both solve the same problem. Why is this one worth more? Why do people pay more for this than this? And so it came up with these four variables and then organized them to an equation that became a fraction, which was the value equation. So if we're, I think we're, we have a video too, so people can see this, right? So if you, if you draw a line in the middle of the screen, which is just the, the fractional line, there's the top of the equation, the numerator. I know everybody's remember from grade school, right? And the denominator is the one underneath, okay? So the first part of the equation is dream outcome, which is what is the experience of transformation that a customer is going to go through that we are, or that rather we are promising that they're going to go through, right? And so... This is more to speak that in general, if you have, if I'm talking to men, for example, and I say, I can help you make a million dollars versus I can help you be handsome, right? In general, mm -hmm. most men will value making a million dollars more than being handsome. And you can see that by the size of the men's beauty market compared to the, the making money market <laughs> for men, right? So it's not that all things, but just in general, this category of items will be higher valued than this category of items. And so that is the only purpose of this first one is what is the experience that we're actually going to be giving and how much value will that confer to the ultimate price we'll be able to charge. So that is variable number one. Now, if two things are the same outcome, let's say it's, it's weight loss, right? And I've got a $9 ebook and I've got a $50,000 liposuction surgery. They both have the same outcome. Why is one 50,000 and one $9? Because of the other three variables. So, Mm -hmm. Variable number two, now that we're talking about two, two types of solutions to the same, in, in the same vehicle, right? Or sorry, the same, the same destination, but different ways of getting there. So number two is perceived likelihood of achievement. And to use the liposuction example, um, if I have two doctors, right? And one of them has done what has not done a surgery yet. They're fresh out of medical school. And the other guy's done 10,000 surgeries and they're both going to do a liposuction surgery. 
which of these guys would we be more likely to want to work with? Which of them mm-hmm. would, be, would we be more likely to want to pay more? The 10,000, we probably asked this guy to pay us to be his first patient, right? <laughs> and, and here's what's even funnier, is that of these two people, it'll probably take this guy longer. So it has nothing to do with time, right? He's, we're going to get more yeah. work out of this guy. It's probably harder for this guy than it is for this guy. He does it in his sleep. Mm-hmm. But still, our perceived likelihood of getting what we want when we buy, and the important point is, is that it confers value to the prospect prior to the purchasing decision. So the knowledge that this guy's done 10,000 versus the knowledge that this guy's done zero actually provides value in, in, that can be translated into increased pricing power to a, to, to a prospect. So when, I, when you start your business and, you're, and you've done uh, 100 testimonials, I used to joke, I was like, oh, that because we, we raised our prices over time. And I was like, well, that was my 100 testimonial price. I was like, this is my 4,000 testimonial price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Because mm-hmm. the likelihood mm-hmm. that you achieve this, it would be unreasonable for you to believe that our, our solution will not work, right? So those are the first It also two. seems to be, especially in the internet, yeah. it's, it's almost, I don't, it, it appears exponential, right? When you, I guess there's, when you're number one in a category and, and people just trust that it's you, given the time is finite, especially if there's any time like the liposuction doctor, he's not just charging three times, like he's charging an insane amount of money more and his clientele are, are willing to pay for it. And part of that's because of the, the, the delicate dance of desire, right? The, su- the supply demand curve, mm-hmm. right? But we can get into that later. Yeah. So sure. uh, number one for everybody is dream outcome. What's the experience or what's the thing that we're providing? Number two is the perceived likelihood that the prospects believe that they believe that they will achieve it upon purchase, right? Same thing. If you get the $9 ebook, what do you think the likelihood is that you're going to lose fat on your stomach? Probably pretty small. If you get liposuction, mm-hmm. what percentage likely do you think that you're going to actually lose fat on your stomach? Pretty fucking high. So <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned testimonials. Is this, is this the variable most influenced by marketing? And in terms of like, yes. you know, if you have a sales page on the internet, is this, is that what the sales page does? Is it like tries to confer certain marketing in so many fills ways? the hole that word of mouth does not have for a business. Because if you mm-hmm. think about what just word of mouth is, if you have three friends who read the book, right, and said the book was good, I don't yeah. need to have a sales page for the book because you already have a perceived likelihood of achieving a, a desirable result from reading the book. Mm-hmm. Right, just so, yep. so it fills the hole if you don't have word of mouth. But yes. Yeah, if I tell my friend to read a yes. book, he'll just, he'll just read yeah, it. And he you're already, and you're already filling out that yeah. value part of the equation for them. Mm-hmm. But yes, 100% to your point, yes. For people who, who, for a new prospect who doesn't know who you are, your marketing, your messaging, your sales, your stories, your positioning in the marketplace overall is going to be the thing that's going to confer the perceived likelihood of achievement. So there's the top mm-hmm. two. Got it. For us as business owners and entrepreneurs and marketers, our goal is to increase this to the highest of our ability, right? We want them to have a beautiful experience, a beautiful beach in Maui that they're envisioning themselves on, and a very high likelihood of achievement. If they, if they buy this thing, they're going to get to Maui, right? 
Now come the other two parts of the equation, which is the bottom half. These are the detractors. These are the things that take away, increase doubt, increase risk. All right? So the first is time delay. So between when I purchase and when I'm going to experience the result. And so as a, as a, as a fun uh, anecdote for anybody, if you want to create value in a marketplace, look at what everyone else is doing and provide the same thing in half the time. Easiest way to provide value, right? But for, for most people, and I, I, want, I want to demonstrate this, right? So if we had a weight loss example, and I use weight loss because everyone understands it. If you were to click a button and buy a $1,000 thing uh, for weight loss and you're a guy, and all of a sudden you look down at your abs or your stomach and there's just a six-pack there, how unbelievably <laughs> valuable would that thing be? Wild. Oh, yeah. Right? And if you were a marketing yeah. agency, which I feel like a lot of the marketing world and lots of people have their SMMAs or whatever it is, right? If, if someone signed up and as soon as their credit card ran, their phone rings and they pick it up while they're on the phone with you after just buying. And it's like, hey, this is Mark. I heard about your company. I just saw uh, some of your advertisements. I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm interested. They'd be like, holy mm. crap. And the thing is, is that the only thing that changed, that might still happen 60, 60 days from now. But how much more valuable is the service or the product if it happens fast, right? And so the goal is that time is a huge component of value. Fast beats free. The reason Spotify was able to take over, even though there was this huge rampant piracy in the market, was that it was fast. That's how they beat free. And I've got a friend mm -hmm. of mine who, who has, um, I think they probably have 20 locations now, um, who, who created like the MVD rather than the DMV um, in New Mexico. And so they got licensed through the state to provide DMV renewal services uh. as a private company. And their whole shtick is... You come in, you pay $50, you pay 50 bucks to not have to wait. That's it. That's the entire value prop. And they kill it. Yeah, that's TSA pre-check. That's awesome. 100%. <laughs> just, I, mean, so, I, I wish there was more of that. But it's one of the easiest value things to think of as an entrepreneur is like, how can I do this thing faster? So that's the third mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the value equation. And the fourth and final is effort and sacrifice. And I didn't talk about this as much in the book, so I'll be able to give the, the listeners something that's unique here, is that effort and sacrifice, I see them as two sides of the same coin. Effort is things that a prospect has to begin doing that they were not doing that they do not enjoy as a result of the purchase. So this might be if I had a marketing agency, all of a sudden I've got to start working leads. I have to make ads that I have to give this person. I have to make creative. I have to have weekly meetings with the team and blah, 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 blah. All this other stuff that comes as a consequence of the purchase, right? The flip side, mm -hmm. sacrifice, or what are the things that I enjoy doing? that I no longer am able to do as a result of the purchase. And so a lot of times they're flips out of the coin. Like if I'm Susie and I got to wake up early because I got to go to the gym now because I'm trying to lose weight. Well, I used to sleep in. So that's a sacrifice. I'm no longer able to sleep in. The effort is that I now have to wake up. So it's kind of two sides of the same thing. Um, but I like, I like delineating the two because I think you think differently about things when you, when you hear both sides of it. And so the idea for us as business owners is how can I get the effort and sacrifice as close to zero as humanly possible? Because in theory, and as I've kind of evolved in the business world, I used to spend the beginning part of my entrepreneurial career always focused on the top side. It was always about bigger promises, bigger claims, lots of testimonials, right? That was, it was all the, the marketing side of it, right? But as I, as, I, as I got older and we started making more money and I started observing the people who were making far more money than me and the companies that were much bigger, it became realizing that the way that those guys were providing value was on the more competitively a defensible side because anyone can make claims and anyone can have testimonials and, and big marketing and, and great 
copying words and stuff. That's the easy part. The hard part mm -hmm. is actually having the operational advantage of figuring out the way to provide the thing faster and provide the thing without effort and sacrifice on behalf of the prospect. And so that's why the, in, in the book I, I titled that section, Getting the Bottom to Zero, which is like, in theory, for us as entrepreneurs, if we could have anything on the top side of the equation that's positive, but the effort and sacrifice and time delay was instant, right? As soon as they purchased it, it was instant. You would have an infinitely valuable product. And if you think about like mm -hmm. Amazon, Netflix, each of these, each of these Uber, whatever, each of these companies has this value proposition in all of the, of the effort in Amazon and their, in their, in their um, reinvestment strategy has been on decreasing effort and sacrificing uh, and, and, and increasing time delay. Sorry, a decreasing time delay, making things faster. Yeah, yeah. So I, when, as, well, as I'm going through this, I was thinking of our own business. Mm -hmm. And I love it when I find ways that, I don't know if it's cut the Gordian knot or like find, a, oh my gosh, if I just you know frame it differently. One of the things that I was coming up against, at least in my head, if it's not a limiting belief, is the physics of transformation. And so like take uh, weight loss, for instance. You know, you're doing gym stuff and you can always promise seven-minute abs, six-minute yeah, abs. Right. Can you talk about designing a product that fulfills these – like? It, it would seem that finding an offer that did it a bigger thing, more reliably, mm -hmm. faster, and more, like that that's just hard to do. Yes. So operationally and in sort of creating these products, like I know I know how I might love to talk about what I do, but how do I make that a thing? What are the skills that one does in order to actually devise a product that you can realistically handle being talked about in this awesome way? Totally. So in the book, you know, the, the, the section I go over this, and so hopefully it's not repetitive for you guys, but the audience haven't read it, so I'm going to go over this. So I think, I think thinking about product improvement is really hard because what does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. But just thinking about what are the problems, every single problem in as nuanced detail as I possibly can about the customer experience, both perceived and actual, that the customer mm -hmm. is going through from, the, from before they start to use the product all the way through the end and after the result or experiencing the result of the product, every single micro step that occurs on that process, how can I lubricate that? How can I make it faster and easier for them so that mm -hmm. when they get to that, they just click cheat code and then they move through, right? And so with services, this is probably easier, right? But this is where great product and design comes into play is like, okay, well, I'm used, if you had software, right? It's like, how many clicks do I need to get here? Is there a way that we can reorganize the UX so that we can do this in fewer clicks? How can we display the information differently? Um, you know what I'm saying here? Like, how can we make it so the effort and sacrifice in terms of training their team uh, and all of that stuff is, is decreased and minimized so that ultimately the, the experience is improved? And so- Can you give a concrete example of what like, uh, not even necessarily a gym launch, yeah. but like a, how a fitness trainer, yeah. you know, somebody who like understands like, dude, you're going to have to eat healthy foods. That's going to suck. Yeah. You're going to have to exercise. Like, how can this person talk about something as difficult to, sh to transform as physical fitness, which is diet sure. and exercise? Yeah. How, how can they talk about it and, and create a product that beats other physical fitness yeah. trainers? So the first like step one is delineating every single problem that the person is going to encounter, all the changes that they're going to have to have, the efforts and the sacrifice, things that they have to start doing, things they have to stop doing, right? And so the things that they have to start doing, it's like they have to, like if we're going sequence here, right? They're going to leave with some sort of plan of some sort. Now, hopefully you have that building them a plan as part of the thing that you're selling them, right? But after yeah. that, they're then going to have to go to the grocery store. So we have to ask the questions, how they're going to know which store to go to. Uh, are they going to have to go to multiple stores? Uh, when they go to the store, how are they going to find the things they're looking for? What brands are they going to need to buy? How much of them, right? 
All of those questions arise. These are all the things people get stuck on. So it's like, okay, well, then how can I solve this problem of grocery shopping? I haven't even gotten to like one click grocery delivery or something like, you know, you got the plan. I'm just going to send the food to your house or I'm going to send the food in a chef to your house or I'm going to send. Yeah. So, here, so I'm going to so take the grocery store example. So in the book, I have the delivery cube, which is the six different ways you can look different lenses. You can look at the product through, right? Um, but just, just for groceries, because this is the first part. We haven't even gotten to cooking. We haven't gotten to meal prepping it out. We haven't gotten to actually showing up with the first workout. Just groceries, all right? So if I were trying to help them with this one problem, I could say, okay, well, uh, I could have a, a, a do-it-yourself gro grocery calculator that I could build so that it would adjust based on their weight and their goals and their calories, and it would adjust for them. Another way is I could already have a pre-made book uh, based on the weeks that they could, they could go through and buy that way. I could do a... Uh, or a grocery store tour, right, where I take a big group of them out and we go buy groceries together. I could record that tour and give that as a virtual product. I could put people together as a buddy system and say, hey, you're not going to go, but you're going to go with an alumni and you're going to go together, and you're going to do that for the first two months of working with me until you have the skill, right? Or I could personally take them grocery shopping, or to your point, I could pre-make the list, load it in Instacart, and then send it to their house. I could also create a, uh, uh, an alliance or an affiliation with some sort of meal prep company as, a, as an additional solution that would be done for you. Right. So like all of these are just different ways. I mean, another one would be because I have I'm just going through the delivery cube in my head. If I said, OK, you can go grocery shopping, but I will be on call for phone or tech support at any time if you get stuck during your shopping. I won't be with you, but I will be there to support you. And you can text me a picture of anything and I'll immediately respond to you. Mm -hmm. I have a, I have a, so that one of one of the books that has had a ton of influence on me is essentialism. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've read it, but it's the, the disciplined idea of, of less is mm -hmm. more. How does that idea, because it seems like it may, compete with this? You know, the idea that being there all the time, having 10 different ebooks for this person potentially to read and six different numbers that they can call and all of this stuff. Yeah. Do you see that as being competitive with this idea of uh, solving every micro problem that this person might experience in their, in their journey? I don't think it is. I'm trying to think about the nuance between the difference because – when I delineate all of these different things that we just said as different ideas mm -hmm. of how we would solve that problem, we would, through trial and error, figure out what the highest likelihood success. So, like, if I had to pick out of all of these, the most likely would be I preload Instacart with their stuff. Got it. That would be the Got most it, which likely. Which is right? simple. Yeah. Simple, not at the grocery but store, not answering through that, questions. And we're just yeah. using this as an ideation process for everyone who's listening so you can think Got about it. whatever problem you're trying to solve. There is a unique way to solve the problem that the prospect, more importantly, will perceive as an easy solution. And to your point, every single time we've made iterations in our services um, and we have education components for our licensing business, right, every new uh, improved version of it gets shorter, not longer. It's always mm -hmm. become less. And that's why the book was small because it took me four versions of the book to get it down to 160 pages. So that I, my goal was that someone could read it in one sitting. That was the goal of the book yep. for me. And I, each of the books that'll happen. I think I did. That. Yeah, <laughs> I that was the I goal. And so, so a hundred percent in terms of simplicity. Um, but for you, from the ideation process, the ideation process, you can be all over the place. But then that's why the the fourth step is trim and stack. Is how am I going to trim and trim and trim down to the few things that have the absolute most value. Uh, or perceived value in the prospect's mind. And then once you go through a handful of customers, you'll also learn more and get feedback and say, they're still having trouble with this. I have to somehow retweak this solution. And this one, they don't value, so I can cut it out.
And this is requiring, it sounds like, real-time or at least survey interaction with your customers so that you're seeing, like, one, what are these problems? I didn't even think of grocery shopping as a problem, you know, so I've got to be next to them or asking them these sorts of questions. And yep. then receiving or soliciting feedback of how did that go, what did you like, those sorts of things go into the the final version of the product. Yeah, and especially for newer entrepreneurs, I, I tend to be – I tend to believe in kind of like the Tesla ideology of starting at the top of the pyramid and then working your way down. So, they, you know, the Tesla first Tesla Roadster was like whatever, $500,000, whatever. It was a lot of money, right? And then the next one was – I think it was 250000 The next thing they came out with was the $100,000 car. And then, you know, years later they came out with the, the $30,000 version. And so I think that people would be best served starting with done for you kind of operationally heavy solutions for people. And that's because you simply don't know enough. And so it's, it's do the expensive quote consulting work that is not scalable to get paid, to learn more about how to solve problems for your prospects so that you will be able to then have a, a brand story, right. For yourself about how you started at this price anchor and how you can provide this level because it's anchored to this price of value at a lower mid-tier price, which might be a done-with-you rather than done-for-you solution, um, with all of the learnings you have from. And this mirrors the experience that I had, which is like I had six gyms, and then I did two years doing turnarounds where I flew out and actually literally did every aspect of it before I was like, okay, our licensing solution will work for gyms, whereas the vast majority mm -hmm. of people are like, well, he's doing a licensing thing. I'll do a licensing thing. But they didn't do the path that got us there, and that's why they don't replicate the success. Yep, makes sense. Ben, I know that you'd wanted to ask about <laughs> yes. personal business questions. I do. So this is where we use our podcast in order to get coaching that would otherwise be quite expensive. <laughs> but go ahead. Listen, go ahead, Ben. This is a question for everyone in the audience that has a 5 million subscriber YouTube channel and has burned out from writing. So... <laughs> For all, for all of those people listening, the question is, uh, we have made 300 plus videos and to date, it has been the engine of our business. That's how we form a relationship with people, create credibility and create desire for mastering charisma. And then we give them the program that masters charisma. I am curious because we have tried to hire for a number of roles. We thought, well, maybe the, the YouTube channel doesn't have to be the backbone of the company. Maybe we can just get a really good marketer. And so we did a multi-month search, pretty much got my ideal person if I could have before the search. Like I, I was like, oh, I would love to poach this person. And we got that person, but it, it didn't end up working out. And then I've secondly um, been, it's been hard to find someone who can write content at the level that we would be proud to publish it. And so the, I, the getting out of the business from the bottom rung and being an owner and a strategist like you mm -hmm. are has been something I've personally struggled with. And I was curious, how do you find the right people because i know your big thing is i don't hire talented people who i need to train i hire people with pre-existing skills how how do you go about that because it has been something that i have either misjudged in the sense that i went this person's going to crush it they have the pre-existing right. skills or i've gone i don't know how to find someone with the pre-existing skill of knows a ton about charisma and is good at writing scripts mm -hmm. um, so i'm just curious if you have any suggestions so or advice on ways i might go about this and I will, I will answer this as a off the cuff of me thinking through it out loud, uh, rather than saying this sure, is the, sure. to, you know, Alex's definitive answer. Um, if I were in this position, when I'd be thinking through like, well, Justin Bieber is like, I just can't find someone to sing like I can on stage so that I can mm -hmm. outsource my Justin Bieber brand. Um, you know what I mean? So like, sometimes I think there are some businesses that are more and more difficult to do that with. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel like a mix of a business and an artist. Yeah. And I think that's normal. 
And so I think um, the first thing that I would do is I'd see if I could chunk chunk down uh, the, the the actual activities, right? Because no one's so like. Are you familiar with Naval Ravikant? I, I, I talk about some of his stuff because I like his stuff a lot. But he talks about mm-hmm. sp- specific knowledge being not that you're going to be the best in the world at this one thing. It's that if you can be decent at seven things, when you combine those seven things, that's what creates – you'll be number one at those seven things when combined, right? And so I think sure. a lot of entrepreneurship and why you guys have been exceptional at your thing is that you were good on camera. You understand script writing. You also understand YouTube. Uh, you're also like – good-looking young guy, like, you know what I mean? There's, there's, and then when you combine all those things, then you become, boom, number one at, at this type of thing. And so if I could chunk yeah. down, because you're not going to be find, be able to find a, a you because there's only one of you, right? But if can I find the number one at these seven or eight skills that I put together, and it might take a village to, to mm. try and replace you. And I'll say within the business that I had on the licensing side, it took me two years, Um to replace my, like it was a two year long process to replace me. Um, and, and I, I, I speak candidly about the fact that the, now part of this might've been because there was this pandemic that went around at the same time as I stepped <laughs> down. So that might've influenced the, the, you know, the income number. So that's not a, um, a, a, a slight at the team or I'm saying this because my team might also listen to this. Um, but I was willing to make the trade off to get the time back. Right. I was willing to make mm-hmm. half as much from that particular entity in order to get 100% of the time that I was, you know, not 100, 90% of the time that I was allocating there. So how do you do it? Um, I think you chunk down and then you'll still be left with something. And so this might be the one fallacy that I can hopefully share is that we have this illusion as entrepreneurs that we're going to quote, replace ourselves and turn our business into passive income, right? It is my opinion that nothing is passive and it's just, you have varying degrees of active. And so mm-hmm. even, even if I were to somehow you know, roll everything into one person who all of my companies rolled into. So I would replace myself, right? Well, who does that person report to? <laughs> right? And so like you're, you're, you're only just, you're consolidating, you're aggregating, but never really eliminating. And I think that simply mm. eliminating the false, the fallacy, the false belief that, that we are failing at complete passiveness somehow sometimes can solve the problem by realizing that it's not a problem to be solved, but just something that needs to be diminished. And it's not a binary of yes or no, but to what degree it's a continuum. Mm. And I think if, if you shift that way, then you can look back two years from now and say, am I more or less involved in the business than I was? And if the answer is mm-hmm. I am 50% or 75% less involved in the business and we're still making the same money, then I would say, I'm doing a great job. I'm going to keep yeah, doing yeah. this direction rather than I'm not passive yet. I suck. Sure. Well, I've, I'm much less active, and Ben is much more active. <laughs> so yeah. it turns out there's not just one of us; success. there's two of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, what in terms of hiring? Do you have tips? And I, I believe that I, I've heard you again. I've heard kind of heard you speak about this, but wanted to ask for clarification. Yeah. I think so many things in business are you developed an instinct, and you just kind of know after a lot of time, and that's life as well. But in terms of knowing if you've got the right person for the job. About how much time do you feel like is appropriate before you get that that instinct that and allow it to kick in? And are, do you have any tips and tricks or particular things to look for uh, to know if this is someone who needs time and TLC and training, mm-hmm. or if this is likely to not work out? That that is an area that I think we are very deficient. Oh, I'll hold on. Oh, yeah. there's I'll hold on. So to many fun things. For too long. So many fun yeah. things on this one. Okay. So, oh, okay. 
So it does 100. So I, I, I'll, I'll consolidate some stuff for the audience. So it, the zero to one million is about promotion. All right, one to ten million is about product. Ten to one hundred million is about people, right? And so that's the that is the trajectory that everyone goes through. First, first false belief is that uh, people are, have like an impeccable picker. You just get better. You never you never get perfect, right? Just as I'm just throwing mm-hmm. it out there. It's just that my error rate is lower than it used to be, but it's not that it's somehow like I have eliminated error. We still make bad hires, but these are the thought processes. And this is kind of this might be interesting for you guys. Is that uh, resume? We'll have three times the predictive power of interviewing in terms of no kidding. Uh, the success. Yeah. Well, a success of, of people in the role. Now, mind you, in a perfect world, you'd have 10 good resumes and then you pick off of interviews. Right. That's kind of the, the that's how you would solve for mm-hmm. both of those. Right. Because um, then you look for culture fit and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of skills, track record is going to be is going to be the greatest predictor that they're going to be able to do the same thing again. Right. And so and as specific as possible. So rather than like this person was in marketing, it's this person uh, handled marketing in a in a YouTube channel that was at 10 million or higher. And so ideally, you want someone who's who's a little bit above where you are, but not so far that they've forgotten where you are now. So and you're poaching, it sounds like you're like like finding that person and they've got a job and they're, you know, and you're going, I want that guy or that gal. Yes. So, and this is again, higher level, right? So when you're playing beginner, beginner business, um, and I'm saying this with love to all business owners, that's not, I'm not saying it's a pejorative thing, but like when you're going zero to a million, most of the times you gotta, you gotta train people because you kind of can't afford really, really good people. You can't, the business economics Mm -hmm. aren't there, right? So you have to take undervalued labor and add value through your own skills. And that's how you end up having still making a profit with low labor costs. Right. And then, you know, at one to 10 million, you can, you can, you can hire people with some level of skill and you can still use job ads and job placements and things like that. And you'll still get decent people. Once you start crossing in the 200,000, $500,000 a year threshold, those people are always employed. They're never not employed. Yeah. They're never not employed. So, and every company that they've ever been employed will work really hard to keep them. So those are people that are, have to, you've got to trade them out of the position they're in to come to work for you. Now, in terms of the characteristics, I'm going to be borrowing this from Warren Buffett, but I think he's a pretty good source. And so I will share with you what, what he has shared with me personally in our many talks together, <laughs> right? Is that he looks for uh, intelligence, which I define as, uh, I just niche that down to uh, super relevant experience, uh, within the and having solved the problem that I'm looking to solve, right? I'm, I'm hiring for solutions. I'm not hiring for for positions. And I mm-hmm. think if we can be very clear about what problem we are trying to solve, we'll be much better at defining the problems. So we get much more clear about the solution. So number one is he says intelligence. I just define that a little bit more nuanced to to have this person solve the problem uh, in a business just like mine. The second is is he calls it energy. I call it work ethic. Right. And the way that you would judge that for me is what's the speed of response when we're interacting with this person? Uh, if I ask them for something, how quickly do they get it to me? Uh, just general communication style, because we like to move quickly. And I know that if they're not moving quickly during the interview process, I'm not going to expect it to move faster afterwards. That is how I measure that. Um, and then the third is character, right? Which is difficult, right? He says integrity, but just I would say character in general. And the underpinnings of that, which is the fourth piece, um, is do they have a long term perspective? Can they think in longer time horizons? And that's so important, especially as you get leadership positions in, because at each level of the business, you're, 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 you're in the beginning, you're replacing tasks, you're replacing doing, right? And then you're replacing managing, and then you're replacing leadership, and then you're replacing vision, innovation, and, um, and decision-making. 
So each of these levels, right, the things that we're placing become more intangible and harder to find, which is why most people sure. don't succeed and don't scale their businesses, because it's harder to look for leadership, right? But yeah. that's like the, the when, when we're approaching these these interviews, we keep it front of mind, which is like, what am I looking for right now? They got on the interview because they have the track record. Okay. The correspondence has been speedy-ish. What I'm really looking for is the character that I think can lead this component in the company. And do they have the teeth to really want to drive? Which a lot of people mm -hmm. don't. Got it. Right? And you still, yeah. and you still I mean, get it wrong. You just have fewer mistakes. Yeah. The, the, the big thing that, I mean, we, if we shifted, would be to target our outreach much more instead of like posting a job post or like a even even a paid job post on LinkedIn, which did net good applicants is to go know the industries that we're looking for a bit better and go like, that's the person that I want to come write my videos or do my thing and, and go track them down and be like, you're the person we want you. What, what do we got to do to yeah, make exactly. this happen? I, I mean, I would say for, for our marketing, for our marketing position, we did offer several hundred grand and we actually did poach. Yeah. Uh, both of our top two candidates were, currently employed um mm -hmm. but we this is going way off i don't know if we'll just cut this for the podcast <laughs> but our, our we're not willing to do some of the marketing strategies that have been successful at other places mm. and so someone might come in and say hey we want to run discounts that only certain people will know about and so it's not unfair because the other people won't know about it and we go yeah. well pretend ever knew about it would people be upset that this had happened he goes yeah but they're not going to know and we just we just don't feel comfortable doing it yeah and that was not something I had a good grasp on it was like how exactly this person. So, okay, you took, I'm going to make this up, you know, 2 million to 10 million. What were the exact strategies that you did? I just saw, oh, you took 2 million to 10 million in a video that sells self-improvement courses, just like us. You're perfect, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I think where I, where we are particularly a pain in the butt for marketing people <laughs> is our definition of, of honesty or doing right by clients is mm -hmm. annoying to most marketing people that we hire. They find it inconvenient and, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well it's i don't and it's it's short term long term right long term mm -hmm. if you thought that long term that discount approach would actually net you more money forever maybe you'd be more inclined to do it but i don't think you think that i think that you think that would be a short term strategy and long term you'd lose brand equity and for for both reasons i well even if it would long term I don't know. I, like I said, I've solved my money problems. Right. So if, the, if I'm trading a tiny bit of my own personal morality or integrity for more, it's just like, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I really don't need that. Right. Things are too good for me to give a damn. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the other thing. And, and to, you know, to the credit of all the people that have come for us, I've watched a lot of your videos and I, and I go, Alex could help guys with our business, but not with our fucking, <laughs> with, not with our drive. Uh, I've, I've been kicking back and enjoying, and I, I watched your video that you talk about the gym that you worked at where the boss said, be here at 9am and he locked the door and everybody who came in after 9am was fired. And I'm the guy who should, the boss who shows up at 9.05, you know, <laughs> I just don't set the standard at a level. But what I, what I think is still wonderful uh, and, and that I do like about it is that I think we have a lot of happy people who work here and enjoy working here. And it is, uh, I don't know. I, I like it. I'm not, I'm not too. We'll be aligned. Well, regardless. Yeah. You're not, <laughs> you're not going to show up at nine. Yes, exactly. We've aligned values and, and, it, and it probably isn't the value of a hundred million dollar company, but we can grow slowly. Maybe, to, uh, maybe not. To, uh, I mean, there's hedge funds that, that operate that way and they manage zillions of dollars. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I think it's just, I think if you're being integrous to what you believe, then I think that will always win out in the end and you can attract and look for people. I was going to add one more note that I think might be valuable for you in terms of the interviewing process, but 
my wife talks about this a lot. Layla, if you see her channel, her channel is super, super, like, it's really good on building infrastructure because that's how the companies that we all, mm. she's really the one who's building that. But yeah. what, is, what is her channel? Shout Layla Hormozzi. It's my name oh, but with Layla in front of it. Um, oh, you go. guys got to find a way to do it. It's so funny, man, because you, you now pop up on my homepage. This is a YouTube thing. If you ever want to chat YouTube, by the way, I don't know if you have somebody that's helping you. I'm happy to sit down and, and talk thumbnails, titles, all that kind of I'm stuff. I'm sure it's if, horrible if it's what I have. So, yeah, would love to. <laughs> <laughs> it can definitely help because it's also interesting that she's not popping up on my homepage given how much similarity their YouTube would imagine. So there's there's some things that you guys can do to cross-pollinate as well. Sweet. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, so she, yeah. Um, she says this thick process, and I like it a lot, is that – she uses the interview process, and one point you were saying directly reach out. You can also just hire a headhunter. So at this point now, we just have several headhunting firms that we know that are reputable. We know the owners, and we just they know exactly what mm -hmm. we're looking for. And so it makes it so much faster and easier for us because I just write a yep. check and the problem solved. And I have and yep. I have three beautiful candidates, and we make a pick. It's just it's just way faster that way. And sometimes the people that like so I just hired. I'll tell you guys this is cool. So on Monday. Um, my new executive assistant starts. Very excited about this. She was um, mm, nice. Sheldon Adelson's uh, oh. assistant uh, for ten years, and he just recently passed. So this wasn't. So she happened to have been on the job market at the exact moment that I needed an executive assistant. And for those who don't know, he was a he's worth thirty three billion dollars. So I'm not quite there, um, but hopefully <laughs> I'll learn from some stuff from her. But but yeah, like those people exist. It's crazy. And using the interview process itself as a learning process for you. So when you talk to, let's say, 10 of these high-level marketing people and you ask, no, specifically, what would you do? Because that is part of our interview process. I want to know specifically what you would do. We, like, we had one guy who was like, well, I'm not going to share that with you until you hire me. We were like, eh, next, right? <laughs> so another guy. Yeah. And then he wrote this massive thing about how we were horrible and it's so unprofessional to expect that. And I was like, thank God we didn't hire you. And so, <laughs> so the other guys were all like, oh, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. And the thing is, is by the 10th interview, we've got a list of like 30 really good ideas. And we have uh, other guys who are like, what do you think about this? It's like, oh, I have experience with those things. And so the interviews get better and better and better as we get more really nuanced uh, information and solutions from people who have already done it. And so we actually get, it's like a two-sided learning process. And I think that even thinking about it that way shifts the perspective of like, God, it's just such a waste of time me interviewing all these people to this is a learning process for me just as much as it is an interview for them. Mm, cool. Interesting. Is there? Did you have other stuff that you wanted to do on the hiring piece? I know that that was a, a big thorn in your side. No, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's not, I wish there were a magic cure. You know, I think what I've been, <laughs> I've been aiming for what you described, which is you're not going to get the person, but maybe you can get someone that takes half the work away. And so that's what I've shifted what I'm aiming for. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be able to just send a title and a topic and have them write it, record it, send it over to our editor, and I'm not involved, but maybe they can do a bunch of early research and a first draft such that I do half the work. So that is that is where I'm actually leaning. I was just kind of hoping you'd have some magic Alex Ramosi bullet that I didn't know about where I could clone myself but lobotomize him so he loves working and hates fun. Um, <laughs> but he hates money. Until I can, he hates money. Until I can do that. No, he, yeah. he loves, yeah, he hates, he hates money. He hates sunshine and surfing, but he's my clone. Um, but no, I mean, I think to, like your, your advice is exactly what I'm going to try to pursue. So it's comforting to know that that's in, at least in the right direction. Yeah. So, okay. Well then, then I'll, then I'll start to bring us back, uh, home and we can wind down with, uh, sort of a follow up. You mentioned, uh, you talked about, you know, uh, flying private is really cool. All this stuff is really cool. You're getting to do what you like. I, I without using the term happy, but I will use the term happy. Yeah. Maybe joy is a better word. Um, how, 
what is bringing you joy? What is working? Because like you said, you've solved your money problems, and these are the problems that you're, that you're solving now. Is, is, are these interviews and, and these kinds of uh, making videos for acquisition and those challenges, do you find that uh, joyous? Have you, have you found a way to solve your, I don't know, joy problem that, that all humans face now that you're really yeah. probably more heavily focused on that? So I've been um, looking into this a lot, and this is probably um, – I would say probably 25 to 30% of my time is focused on kind of these types of questions. Um, mm -hmm. And so what's really interesting is that I think Aristotelian, um, so Aristotle, like kind of made this, this point and it's actually gave me a lot of solace in thinking about it. Um, but it was that you cannot see whether a man's life was well lived until after he is, he's dead. And I thought that was, for me, it actually gave me a lot of comfort because it was like, so then I, it, it decreases the pressure that I have in terms of how to always try and create meaning because meaning is actually tr created posthumously. So rather than think as I'm doing something, is this thing meaningful? Instead, I could finish my week and then look back and say, I will ascribe this meaning to these activities. Mm -hmm. And that, that has actually been very helpful for me. Um, in terms of the meaning of life, I, I'm borrowing this from a friend of mine, um, uh, who, who quoted Albert Camus, who's a, a, a Moroccan, I believe, a yeah. Moroccan uh, philosopher. And he said, the meaning of life is the reason you don't kill yourself. And it's not super, it's super morbid, but it's also kind of true, right? Like whatever the reason we get, like what, like if you think of it, like, why would I not do that? It's like, well, whatever the actual first or second answer that you have is your meaning. And I thought that that was actually really, really powerful. So for me, that was also very, very uh, useful. And then the third. What did you come up with for that? The game. Oh, the game, the game, just the, the game is, is in and of itself is I love the game. pleasurable. A joy. I love the game yeah, and my it. wife, Layla, I would, I would <laughs> yeah, yeah. in that order. Yeah. <laughs> she's part of the game. She's, she's got yeah. a YouTube channel. As no, well. Layla's awesome. Like Layla. And I, I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to selfishly take the next 60 seconds for everybody who's, who's, um, who's deciding on like who their life partner is going to be. And I call it that way rather than like spouse or wife or husband, because I think it is really life partner. Um, I'm such a proponent of loving logically, and I know that's uh, that's that's a oxymoron, you know, in, as most people understand it. But I think that arranged marriages make a lot of sense, <laughs> like because parents look like you could you probably know your friends and see some of the people they're dating. Like, what are they thinking? Right? Like this, what an idiot! Why, all the time, all the time. And the thing is, is that sometimes you're that friend, right? All the time, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so I think that like. The biggest, the second biggest risk I've taken in my life besides quitting the job that I did was when Layla and I got married, I was petrified because I was like, I can't believe I'm adult enough to actually do this and make this decision. This is insane. How are they letting me do this? Really? No, <laughs> yeah. really. And I was like, I can't believe that I can actually just choose to marry someone. This sounds insane, right? Yeah. Um, but the reason I was able to move forward with it and I wasn't able to move forward in the past is that logically my logic brain kept stepping in whenever I had these relationships that I was like really passionate and love and all this stuff and this chemistry. Right. And I was just like, but this doesn't make sense. They don't like the stuff I like. You know what I mean? I would just think, mm -hmm. I was like, but they don't like, like, it would always be like, okay, done talking about business. Now let's talk about what I like to talk about. And I was just like, oh, I don't want to stop talking about what I want to stop talking about. I don't want to compromise. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for me, what we, what, what with Layla is I kind of have a, a life without compromise. Like I was like, this is exactly how I want to live. Do you want to do that? And I remember when I was dating, people were like, that's so selfish and one-sided and you're never going to find anybody who likes that. And I was like, well, I only need to find one. Yeah, and that's I what I think that. people miss. It's like, in the past. it's like, it's like, well, what's the likelihood that you find? I'm like, I only need one. N equals one is all I have to find. So it's okay that it's an outlier. I expect it to be an outlier. It should be an outlier. 
But it doesn't mean I can't find it. It just means it'll take me longer. And so I would just say for everyone, like the single most important decision I think that we make in terms of subjective well-being, and that's supported with data, is that you have a 0.71 correlation to your, to your own subjective well-being based on the strength of your relationship with your significant other. And so for me, I've taken the they're in the business with me approach. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm saying that is what worked for me because I could have this shared experience and we're aligned in where we're trying to go and we both are exposed to the same stimuli. So we grow together in that direction. And that has been very valuable to me. Interesting. No, I, we've, we've talked about compromises regards relationships in the past, and it is a uh, sticky question. You know, a lot of people tell you that compromise is the bedrock of relationships, and that has always, for me, gone – it's not been the bedrock of my friendships. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it has not been like it has been not at all uh, really in my friendships. Almost never in my friendships is there a compromise. It's just shared desire to do and not do the same Win-win. types of things. So why would that be completely different in a relationship? Uh, and then, you know, there's a bunch of reasons that are offered that, that tend not to make a ton of sense. <laughs> uh, so that's that's something that I that I have not gotten to the bottom of. But it we've, we've discussed in the past here and, and I've felt similarly that. Compromise sounds like a dirty word to me. <laughs> Sometimes. Um, anything else that you wanted to, to get to before we hop off, Ben? No, nothing comes to mind. Yeah, I want you to let you do, uh, you know, I, I'll shout you out. I think your channel is awesome. Uh, I have, I've gotten a lot out of it myself. It has really crystallized why we are <laughs> at the level that we are at and why we are growing at the speed, which is still good. We're still growing, but why we're, you know, not parabolic at this point because I'm going, oh, uh, you know, that's what would be required. And it totally makes sense. Uh, so no matter where you're at, I think one of the cool things is that you can't always tell with Alex's channel immediately whether it's a video for somebody who's just getting started or somebody who is making three, five, ten million dollars. And there's tons of value at every single level. So it's Alex Harmozy on YouTube. Anything else you want people to check out? Uh, there's the books, 99 cents uh, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's about $100 million offers. Uh, I'll be making nine more books uh, in the series. Each book comes with a course that's free. It's on my site, acquisition.com. You don't have to opt in for anything. So it's it's there. You can just consume everything. There's downloads, checklists, everything for, for making the offer that you have more compelling so you get more people to say yes at higher prices. And uh, like I, I've, I've gone through the one course that was up when I last checked, and those are, you know, if you, if you like reading, check the book. If you like if you like watching videos, go to acquisition.com. It's all awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Appreciate having Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It was an honor to be here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.